passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. As a church, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Today, we are in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. I'd like to ask everyone to take out their notes, because we'll be in our notes this morning. We have a very interesting passage we're studying today. It's a, another Markin sandwich. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you've seen that Mark uses these literary sandwiches on occasion. It's actually a Roman rhetorical technique where you, he starts a story and then he stops it halfway through and does another story in the middle and then returns to the first story that he cut in, in halfway through. So it's like a sandwich. Now, what this is, is this is a way of taking two stories, weaving them together, and trying to make one big point from them. So it's a story in a story. In this case, we're going to see a miracle inside of a miracle. And it's going to be the story of a dead girl and the story of a sick woman and how Jesus transformed them. Now, usually at this point, I would take the time to read through the text, but this morning I'm not going to be doing that because it is a longer and lengthier passage, so we'll just study our way right through the text and let the story unfold itself as we proceed. Now, the first verse sort of sets the context for the story, so we'll look at the context, and then once we get to the other verses, it dives into the story itself. So beginning on the top of your notes is the first verse. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. We've seen in previous messages that most of what's taking place in Mark is taking place in the city of Capernaum, which is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. We've seen that Jesus typically doesn't teach in the city of Capernaum because the crowds are far too large to, for the city to contain. So he goes down to the shore and he teaches on the shore. It's not uncommon for him to have 10,000 or more people uh, listening to him as he teaches and as he heals during the day. We've seen in, from previous weeks that he's had a long and busy day of teaching. And then what he did with his disciples is they got into the boat in the evening hours and sailed to the other side, the eastern side of the, the lake. It's a six-mile trip. And when he arrived on the other side of the sea, it was the Gentile side, he met literally the neighbor from hell. You remember this? The demon-possessed maniac he greeted Jesus. Now, this guy took demon possession to a whole new level. Instead of being possessed by one demon, the Bible says he was possessed by a legion of demons. That's 5,000 to 6,000 demons at a, a person at one time. The scriptures tell us that these demons gave him supernatural strength, that he could literally break chains. He was uncontainable, unrestrainable, and he terrorized the people of that side of the lake. But when Jesus showed up on the other side of the lake, he ran to Jesus and he fell before him in fear and in reverence. And with just a word, 
Jesus cast all five to 6,000 demons out of him, like that. Now, after Jesus cast the demons out of this man, the people of the town asked him to leave. And we wonder, why would they ask him to leave? Remember what happened. The demons were cast out and went into a herd of pigs, 2,000 in number, who ran down the hillside and all drowned in the sea. And the people were reasoning, if straightening out one of the nutcases in our town cost us 2,000 pigs, imagine what happens when he starts to meet the other nutcases in town. It's going to cost us a lot. So they asked Jesus to leave. And that morning, Jesus and his disciples sailed back to the other side of the lake. It's a six-mile trip, which is where we pick up our story this morning. Now, when he sailed to the other side of the lake, the crowd that was there the night before actually hadn't left. They were still looking for him and waiting for him to come back. Because Jesus, as we see, he's sort of quite a celebrity in this part of the world. Now, why is he a celebrity? Was it his stunning good looks? Or was it his money? His charismatic personality. Absolutely not. Those weren't the things that made him so popular. Actually, what made him so popular was his healing. Remember, this is the ancient world. Sickness is common. Everybody is touched by it. There's no such thing as hospitals. There's no such thing as surgery. There's no such thing as antibiotics. Disease and sickness is rampant, and there's no easy cures, except for Jesus. He has the ultimate health care plan, doesn't he? Everybody who touches Jesus is instantly and completely healed just like that. Now that day when there are 10,000 people gathered around Jesus, all to see Jesus, to be with Jesus, and to reach out and touch Jesus, there are two particular people that this story zooms in on. One of them is very rich, the other is very poor. One of them is incredibly respected in the community, the other is totally rejected in the community. One is a person of honor, the other is a person of shame. One is the leader of the local synagogue, the other is barred from even attending the local synagogue. One has a daughter who's 12 years old that is in the process of dying. The other has been suffering from a lingering illness for the last 12 years that has kept her as it is to be the literal walking dead. They're very similar, but in other ways, they're very different. What binds them together is in their time of desperation, they place their complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ to heal them in their hour of need. Now, let's go ahead and dive into the story and to meet these two people. The first one is named Jairus. Jairus was a respected man with a dying daughter. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. 
Jairus was a ruler of the local synagogue. Now, this means that because of his position, he is in close relationship with the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are in the synagogue in that area. Now, earlier in Mark, we've already learned what the Pharisees and Sadducees have decided about Jesus. They have rejected Jesus, and they at this time are literally plotting the death of Jesus. And Jairus is in that group, but he is breaking ranks with that group, and he is coming to Jesus out of that group. The scriptures here say that he was a synagogue ruler. Let me explain to you more what a synagogue ruler is and what they did. Um, In every synagogue, they had at least one man and sometimes a group of men that ruled that synagogue. They were not the teachers that taught in the synagogue, but they were the ones who maintained the scrolls. They maintained the facilities. They, over, they were the leaders over top of the synagogue school. They organized the readers on the services, the prayers in the services, and the teachers in the ser- services. Most synagogues only had one synagogue ruler in them. And here in Capernaum, which is a relatively small town, Jairus is most likely the one synagogue ruler that controls that synagogue in that area though we do know that some of the larger communities had multiple synagogue rulers in them. We see that in Acts chapter 13, verse 15. The synagogue rulers held a very important position. They were one of the elders of the synagogue, and the synagogues had between three to seven elders leading them, and so Jairus would have been in that group. Synagogue rulers were elected by the people. And the synagogue ruler was considered to be one of the most respected and admired men in the entire community. That's Jairus, an incredibly respected and admired man in the city of Capernaum, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we might ask, what would Jairus actually know about Jesus, and how connected would he be to Jesus? Well, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we saw that Peter's house was literally a two-minute walk down the road from the local synagogue of Capernaum. So when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, remember Jairus was only a two-minute walk away, when the paralytic was let through the roof in Peter's house and he was healed, Jairus was only a two-minute walk away and countless people were healed at Peter's house And Jairus would have been in the synagogue just a few minutes away. But Jairus didn't know all these healings of Jesus just from a distance. Remember when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in the local synagogue? Jairus would have been there most likely and seen it happen. Do you remember when there was that man who had a demon? It was a demon-possessed man undercover that was exposed in the local synagogue by Jesus? Jairus would have been there when that happened. So Jairus is very familiar with Jesus' healing powers. He has decided to step out of the ranks, to break away from the Sadducees and the Pharisees and what they've said about Jesus, and he has come to Jesus ever so humbly and ever so desperately. He is on his knees begging Jesus. 
And the next verse tells us why. And he implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Implore is, simply means to beg. This highly respected and admired man gets on his knees in front of Jesus and begs Jesus to come to his house to save his daughter. Now, interestingly, it says that she is at the point of dying. She's not dead, but she is just about dead. There is not much time left. She is knocking on death's door. Jairus, the picture we have of him is he's, he's a good father. He's a loving father who desperately cares for his daughter. He would do anything to save his daughter. He would take her place if he could, but he can't. So he's come to Jesus and he's begging Jesus, please come and heal her. Now, we also learn that she's 12 years old. We go to the parallel account in Luke. Luke chapter 8, verse 42 says that this is his only child. To put you further into Jairus' life, you need to understand that how it worked in this culture, that at 12 years of age, that was the time when young girls began looking at marriage in that culture, began looking at becoming a wife, and soon a, a mother. Twelve years of age in that range was some of the happiest times of a young girl's life. Yet, for Jairus, for his only child, this isn't a happy time. It's a terrifying time as his daughter lingers between life and death and he may lose the only hope that he has in his child. Can you put yourself in his shoes and feel the pain and feel the desperation? And it says, And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. I, I love this. This is so cool. Of all these people demanding Jesus, Jesus sees Jairus begging him to come to his house and he responds to Jairus, I'm going to your house today. We're going to go heal your daughter. And you can picture this. Jairus is up and Jesus is going with him. He's making his way through because finally a ray of hope has dawned in his heart. Jesus, he's coming to my house. Jesus is going to heal my daughter He's healed everybody, but now he can heal my girl. Make way! But it says the crowds thronged about him. Now, we don't use the word throng nowadays, but what does it mean? The Greek word behind this literally means to press together from every side. Thousands of people are all reaching and pressing and squeezing Jesus so he's able to make almost no progress to Jairus' house. This is human gridlock. It's sort of like an ambulance 
with somebody in a life or death situation and the lights are on and it pulls onto the highway and gets stuck in traffic, able to make no progress at all. This is what's happening. So you can picture Jairus, make way, <laughs> please move, give me airspace. Jesus is coming to my house to save my daughter. But nothing is happening. They're not making it through. And with that, the first story is put on hold. And the next story begins. Jesus stopped to heal and care for a sick woman. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now we're going to get into the details of her condition as we continue to work through this. But this is a lady who's having a female bleeding problem. And she's had this problem for an awful long time, for 12 years. The same amount of time that Jairus has had his daughter. She has experienced a constant loss of blood. Well, to begin with, this is a very embarrassing thing for her. But not only that, it leaves her in a position of anemia. Anemia and lethargy. You know, they don't have those little iron pills that you can take at this time. So she is in complete anemia and lethargy, and she cannot have children. Combine that with what the Old Testament law teaches about this. In Leviticus 12 and Leviticus 15, it says that when a woman went through this kind of a regular cycle, she would be considered unclean for the next seven days after that. Now, when a woman was unclean, she couldn't attend the temple. She couldn't attend the synagogue. She couldn't touch her husband. She couldn't touch other people because that would communicate her uncleanness to others. But this woman has not been unclean for just seven days. She has been in a continual state of uncleanness for 12 long years of not being able to go to the temple or the synagogue to experience worship and community, not being able to touch her husband if she has one or her friends if she has them not being able to touch children or friends. She's had 12 years of loneliness, isolation, and rejection by the community she lives in because of her bleeding problem, which leaves her unclean. The text tells us more about her and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Not only was she untouchable and unclean, but she had gone to the doctor for these problems many times. And the doctors had not improved her. All the doctors she had gone to for 12 years had simply made her worse. And she had taken everything she had and she sold all of it just for money to go to these doctors. They had sold the car. They had sold the house. They had cashed in their retirement everything to pay these doctors who had only made her worse over time, not better over time. And I wondered, what kind of treatment would she go through? 
So I did some extra biblical research on this because it talks about these kind of uh, cures for a woman's bleeding problem in the Talmud. And some of these cures are toxic, which probably is what some of the things she has suffered through. Others of the cures are rather silly. Now, I'm not going to tell you the toxic ones, but I'll tell you some of the silly ones to give you a little laugh because you'll see how ludicrous it was because they didn't know what to do with this situation. One of the suggested cures in the Talmud was to take the, ash, the ashes, excuse me, ashes of an ostrich egg and carry them on your body in a linen bag in the summer and in a cotton bag in the winter and you will be healed. How well do you think that worked? Another suggested cure in the Talmud was to take a kernel of barley corn that had been found in donkey dung and carry it on your person for healing. Still another one in the Talmud was to make sure you drink wine mixed with onions. That would cure something, but I don't think it would cure that. As you can see, they really didn't have much of an idea what to do with her problem and how to cure her problem. And 12 years of doctoring had only made her worse. But she heard about Jesus and about Jesus' ability to cure anything. And she placed her faith and trust in him completely that he, he would be able to cure her when nobody else could. And she heard the reports about Jesus. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She placed strong faith, her complete faith for healing and hope to solve her from her uncleanness and suffering in Jesus Christ. And in the crowds that day of thousands of people who were all pressing and squeezing into Jesus, I picture her as having a hood over her head so nobody would see her and recognize her as the outcast she was, coming as, uh, as undercover as she could, and she was working and pressing, and there was a small gap in the crowd for a moment, and she reached her hand in to touch his garments. The parallel account in Luke, Luke chapter 8, verse 44, tells us that she didn't want to just touch his garment, but she wanted to touch the tassel on his garment. The Jews, it says in Numbers chapter 15, that they were told to have tassels, some string off the edge of their garment. It was to mark them out as holy and set apart for God. And she says, you know, I don't really need to touch much of Jesus but I believe that I can just touch one of the pieces of string that hangs off the corner of his garment. That would be enough. That would be enough of a touch for him to heal me. And in the mix of that crowd and the jostling and the bumping, she reaches through and touches one of those strings and holds it for just a brief second and lets go. And the scriptures tell us how things unfolded. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She was cured instantly and completely by her touch with Jesus. Jesus completely reconstructed her reproductive system. 
Now it says she was healed of her disease. And I think it would be helpful for us to dig into that a little bit because the word disease here is a very specific word. It's the word for affliction and the word for agony. It's the same word used to describe the flogging that Jesus experienced before he went to the cross. It says that for this woman, it had been 12 years of constant suffering and constant agony. And instantly when she touched just one of the strings of his tassel, she was completely and totally healed. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. Immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Well, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. You picture this. Thousands of people all reaching their hands out to touch Jesus and to be with Jesus. And in the midst of this crowd, Jesus stops and turns around and says, Who touched me? The disciples are like, Jesus, you've lost it. Everybody is touching you. But yet he wouldn't make progress. He wasn't going anywhere. He stood right there and he kept scanning the crowd. Who touched me? Now, do you think that Jesus didn't know who touched him? I personally think he knew exactly who touched him. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that Jesus knows the thoughts of the religious leaders. If he knows people's thoughts around him, he certainly knows who touched him, and he certainly knows who he just healed. But why is he doing this? I think the reason he's doing this is because he doesn't want to just heal this woman physically, but he wants to restore this woman socially. Twelve years of being an outcast, and here he wants to recognize her, communicate with her, and talk with her. And it says, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. After some time and realizing that she could not avoid this situation, she stepped forward and said, it it was me. It was me. The touching of the tassel of your garment healed me completely and, and fully. And she was trembling in fear. You know why she'd be trembling in fear? Because for 12 years, everyone had rejected her and despised her. What would Jesus do to her? And then it says here something very interesting. She told him the whole truth. In other words, she has a 12-year-long story. And guess how much she told of it? All 12 years in the emotions and of the moment and the thankfulness for what had happened, she just kept dumping her heart out and talking to him and telling, her all, telling him all the suffering that she had gone through and all the problems she had gone through. This was a lengthy story. And you know what Jesus does? He takes the time to listen to her and care about her. Doesn't rush her through. Now remember the first story. What is going on in the background with Jairus? 
what is going on in the background with his daughter that is on the point of death that they're trying to rush and get through? And yet Jesus is caring about this woman, restoring her socially, listening to her personally, not just healing her physically. Now, Jesus finally says this to her, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What's interesting is he calls this woman daughter. This is the only time in the scriptures where he addresses a woman this way. Daughter is a term of endearment. It's a, it's a family term. It's a homely term, an embracing term. For 12 years, nobody had wanted her. Nobody had called her family because she was unclean. She was rejected and despised. And here Jesus embraces her and welcomes her and says, go, because, go in peace because your faith has made you well. Notice this. It wasn't the touching of his tassel that healed her. It was her faith in him, complete faith and trust in him that healed her and that made her family. Now, in the meantime, Jairus, we see, has been in a panic because his daughter was on the very edge of death. And we go from a man with a sick daughter to a man with a dead daughter. Jairus was a respected man with a dead daughter. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? This delay turned deadly. First the delay was the crowds that wouldn't let them through. Then the delay was this rejected woman. This woman who didn't just get healed by Jesus, but then took all of her time to just pour her life story out to Jesus. And Jesus didn't brush her off, but he listened to her the whole time. Can you imagine the amount of crushing, the crushing weights in Jairus' heart at this moment as he's lost his daughter's life? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Literally, it says here, Jesus said to him, stop fearing, keep believing. Luke in his parallel account says, stop fearing, keep believing, and your daughter will be made well. In other words, this sick woman, she was healed of her incurable disease by placing her complete faith and trust in me. Now, Jairus, Place your complete faith and trust in me and your daughter, even though she is dead, will be made well. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and, and wailing loudly. At this point, Jesus streamlines the amount of disciples that are with him, this Peter, James, and John. And by the time they get to Jairus' house, the funeral, by the way, is in full swing. 
So this makes us realize that the time period where uh, Jairus is trying to bring Jesus to his house has actually been a, a lengthy one because this girl has died and they've had the time for this information of her death to spread and for the funeral actually to begin. So this was a long time. Now, in our world, in our funerals, you always want to be quiet and you want to be somber when a funeral takes place. But in their world, it was very different. When you came to a funeral, you cried and you wailed and you wept loudly as a way of expressing your sadness for the death of the one that you was loved. The other thing is in our funerals, we always dress in our best, don't we? In their funerals, they dressed in their worst. And the reason is because what they would do is they would always tear their clothes in their mourning because of the one who died. The Talmud actually gives instructions on how this would take place. You were to tear your clothes when you were standing, not sitting. If you were a relative of the one who died, you were to make sure you tore your clothes over the area of your heart. You were to make sure you tore, the tear was to be large enough that your fist could fit through it. You were to wear those torn clothes for the next 30 days as a sign of your mourning. And when you came to that funeral, you were to weep and wail loudly. The other thing they would do in these funerals is they would literally hire what would be called weeping women. These are women who, like working in Hollywood, had perfected the art of crying. They could cry on command, you know, the tears, everything running down. And so you would hire them and they would come to your funeral and they would cry and the reason they do this is because, guys, what happens when there's a woman crying in the room? Doesn't everybody start to cry? Yes. So the idea is they would be the professional criers who would cry. Crying would become infectious, and there wouldn't be a dry eye in the entire house for the funeral. So we have crying women who are weeping and wailing in this group. The other thing that we know about the way they did funerals is they always were to hire flutes. Now you're thinking, why did they hire some flutes? They weren't there to play a song. They were there to play a discordant, sort of irritating notes. So it sounded roughly like fingernails on the chalkboard. So you have people that are crying, tearing their clothes. You have professional crying women in the group. You have these people making these gross sounds on the flute, and it just is a really nasty thing going on at this point. In fact, the Babylonian Talmud says no matter how poor you were, you had to at least hire two flutists and one crying woman. And this is the situation Jesus comes into. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. Now remember who he's saying this to. The professional crying women who go to funerals for a living. The flutists who do funerals for a living. They know what a dead body looks like because they see dead bodies every day. They know this girl is dead deader than a doornail. And so what do they do? They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. 
He gets rid of the criers and everybody, the parents and the three disciples with Jesus go into this little girl's bedroom. There she would be on a Jewish bed mat on the ground, cold, blue, and lifeless. And then it says, and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Incidentally, why this incident is recorded in the other Gospels, only Mark preserves the original Aramaic of what Jesus said. The reason for that is because Mark based his Gospel on the first-hand eyewitness accounts of Peter who was in the room when this unfolded. Talitha, in Aramaic, it literally means little lamb. It's a term of endearment. Today, we would use the term with our child, hey, honey. Kumi means it's time to get up. Talitha kumi means honey, it's time to get up. It's the same phrase that Jairus has used for years in the morning when he walks into his little girl's bedroom Maybe pulled the shades across and let the sun come in, and he'd go over to her and say, Honey, it's time to get up. And what Jesus does is he comes to this little girl and he gets on his hands and his knees because the mat is on the ground, and he takes her cold and lifeless hand and he holds it. Honey, it's time to get up. And what happens next is simply amazing. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. One minute she was cold, dead, and lifeless. And the next minute she opens her eyes. She gets up, she starts walking around the room looking for her toys as if she just got up from an afternoon nap. She didn't even have to stretch completely restored, better than new. You can picture Jairus and his wife just bawling in tears, holding one another, crying in disbelief how this moment of total grief was instantly transformed into total and complete joy. As Jesus raised this little girl from the dead with the tenderness of a father waking his daughter on a Saturday morning. Now it says something interesting. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, I don't think we need to read too much into this. Mom and dad are completely overwhelmed. They're crying, they're hugging, they're weeping, and he's like, you know, she's a little growing girl. Give her a snack. That's really what it means. Give her something to eat. She's been sick for a while. And then he says, don't tell people about this. And by the way, I think it's simply this. Give myself and my disciples a head start. Because when she comes out of this room alive, if we're around, we're not going to be able to go anywhere. Now, what can we learn from this? There's two simple things I want to point out. The first one is this, Jesus has more than power, He has compassion for our needs. 
In Mark chapter 5, the theme of that chapter is the incredible, amazing power of Jesus, which is more than we ever comprehended, to calm a storm with his word, to cast a legion of demons out of a man, here to cure an incurable disease, and also to raise a little girl from the dead. But did you notice the compassion woven into all this of Jesus? His power is not like a bolt of lightning that rages across the sky uncontrollably. The woman that he healed from her bleeding, he took the time to listen to her, to socially restore her, to care for her, and to call her a daughter. The little girl, (laughs) he raised her from the dead with all the tenderness of a loving and caring father, waking his daughter on a Saturday morning for family time together. My folks, Jesus doesn't just have all the power to meet our needs, but he has incredible compassion and love for you in your time of need. We can't miss that in these stories. The other thing is this. Faith in Jesus unleashes God's power in our life. This is the connection of the Mark and Sandwich in here. Both the lady, the bleeding lady, she was healed when she placed her complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jairus and his daughter, she was healed when Jairus placed his complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When we place our complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it unleashes God's power in our lives. Now, the million-dollar question is this. Does that mean that Jesus is going to raise people from the dead right now? Or heal people who are sick right now? He can, he may not. But when you go further into the Bible, when you go into the New Testament, into Paul's letters, what we find is this. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and at work in all those who believe. And then he goes on to describe what this power does. This power takes our sin when we trust in Him, and we are forgiven of our sin, and it breaks the grip of sin on our life, and it makes you and me into completely new creations when we trust in Him. Folks, the amazing power of Jesus is still at work And the scriptures say that for all those who trust in him, what they find is forgiveness of sin. They find breaking the power of sin, and they are made into new creations because of Jesus Christ's transformative power in their lives. His power is alive and at work in you and me. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.